Thank you. Yes. Okay. Well, we're going to get going here again. I will just mention that uh, tomorrow's talk and next week's talk, you have flyers on your desk, which are on your uh, tables, which I mentioned earlier. I'll also note that today's session and other sessions can be found on the SACPA website, where you can continue on uh, with the discussion. There's also a, a question comment uh, box, um, which you can use to um, uh, give us your feedback. Um, please uh, line up over here. We'll keep our comments brief and ask our, our questions to our, our speaker here. And um, let's just kick it off. Let's get it going here. Thank you for informative uh, after. Oh, it's not on yet. Okay. Okay. Well, I don't know. I didn't flip any switches yet. Okay, thank you very much. I, I really appreciated your overview. Uh, Ruth Alzinga, and uh, oh, by the way, I did predict the election right. Oh, good for you. It's not the way I voted, but the person I voted got in as well. So okay. I'm a winner on both fronts. <laughs> well, not, yeah. I wish, and I'm not, I, wish, I'm not, I wish we had a position to hire you to predict elections. <laughs> but I'm not unhappy with results, uh, although it's not the way I voted. I have three questions, and they're sure. quick. Number one, why do you think there were so many days for advance poll? Before you answer that, I'll ask a second question. Um, I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget. The media release. How do you think the fact that the media was permitted to release the Eastern results uh, before Westerners voted, how, how could that skew things? And third, do you think consideration might be given for limiting a term of office as they do in the States for two, for, for two terms? Those are my questions. Thank you. So the increased dates for advanced polling, uh, and if you notice, there were lots of stories about uh, how many people voted in advanced polls, and that this was a sign of uh, increased voter turnout. And the voter turnout was up quite substantially. But what's happening is that political parties and candidates are much more trying to get people to vote early. And the reason for this is pretty simple. If they make a mistake in the last week of the campaign and you already voted, you can't go back and ask for your ballot ba back, right? It's, it's pretty simple. And it used to be that the rule with advanced voting uh, is, was that you, uh, you had to have some reason you were away. You were traveling or, or scheduled for surgery or something like that. But we've gone to this, that anyone can advance vote in any way just to make the system much, much more accessible. So I think really that's why they've expanded the days. More people are taking advantage of this, of this and candidates and parties are much more pushing people to uh, get out to vote. As for the early release of election results, um, so, so this, this election was the first time where there wasn't a media blackout. So when the polls closed in Newfoundland and Labrador, you could turn on the TV, even though the polls weren't closed here. So technology had largely made that obsolete. It was not difficult to find out what was happening in other parts, even though it was technically illegal to broadcast things, but people in Australia were quite happy to do this, right, because they thought the law was quite ridiculous. So it was an archaic rule, and uh, this was one way to, uh, to deal with it. Um, I don't, I mean, it's hard to tell yet at this point whether it had any impact. I suspect it didn't. Voter the big thing we'd expect is voter turnout. If people think the election's a done deal, uh, then why vote? But voter turnout was up to 68.5%, which is a substantial increase over uh, what we have seen in, uh, in previous elections. So there's not a lot of evidence that it made much difference. Whether it affected the way people voted, um, again, I have no data one way or the other. What struck me, I was really excited about this because I'm one of those who would try to circumvent the ban because, ban because watching elections is 
uh, part of what I do for a living. I was actually really disappointed how unexciting it was. It's really slow, those first 33 seats coming in. And uh, it was so one-sided as well. Um, so I'm not, uh, so I, my answer is I really don't know. I suspect it didn't make much of a difference because it's also a busy time of day for most of the country because uh, around 5, 5.30, people are either trying to vote or making supper. Or they're busy with a lot of things, shuttling their kids to activities. Um, I'm blanking on the third question you asked me. Oh, term limits. Um, so term limits don't really fit well with a parliamentary system because although we have fixed election dates, uh, the, the basically the elections are, are largely shaped by technically by the governor general, right? You go in, the prime minister can ask for a dissolution of parliament, and if the prime minister has lost the confidence of the house, he or she has to do that. Um, and generally, the prime minister or the governor general will oblige. So, because of this idea that you have to have the confidence of the house, and elections are triggered upon that, it doesn't really work the way it would in the U.S., where the president's mandate to govern is not dependent on the support for Congress. If it was, Barack Obama would have been out six years ago, right? So, we don't. Um, it, it doesn't really fit with our system in the same way. Uh, but you're not the first person who's asked me that after that. I think it was after the election. My mom sent me a text message saying, what do you think about this? Ask me that very same question. So I'm giving you the same answer I gave my mom. So you know it's the straight goods. Hi, Henry. My name is uh, Henning Mundell. Hello. And uh, since Ruth set the precedent and our moderator hasn't uh, said otherwise, I have two quick questions. Okay. <clears throat> And they're sort of related. I liked your colored graphs and the moving over time and uh, the bars, the three, mm -hmm. the orange, red, and blue. How would you really, though, uh, characterize what happened with the liberals? I mean, you had them jump over the NDP, but didn't they split in half? Didn't they have a, a, a dual personality and some there and some there? So that's one. Okay. And number two, the traditional role of the NDP as the conscience from the, th don't they have to move further left for that? So um, yes, those, those are related. So you're absolutely right about the liberals. So generally when we talk about party positioning, we usually do multiple dimensions. Uh, so two is easier to visualize. Once we get three or more, it's really hard to do on a two-dimensional surface. So I was, I was simplifying. I was focusing on the economic fiscal policy dimension. So you're right on a lot of things, and I, I mentioned that in the talk on security issues, for example, C51. Uh, Justin Trudeau has been supportive of C51 which is not sort of a left position. He took a fairly right position. And the, so the advantage of being in the center is, yes, you're vulnerable on both sides, but you have that flexibility, right? The, the Liberal Party has not generally been known for ideological consistency over time, right? They're, um, they do typically what it, tends, what, what it takes to win. Um, I, the test I always uh, pose to my students is this simple one. Can you imagine a position you don't think that party would take? And it's, it's hard with the Liberals, right? Because balanced budgets, well, in the 90s, who cut 30,000 federal public service jobs and balanced the budget? It was the Liberals. It was not the Conservatives. Um, so they can prove to be quite right-wing when they need to be. And there's a saying about the Liberals, they campaign to the left and govern to the right as well. So yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I, I've, I think you're entirely right about that. So for the NDP, 
they in this campaign they very much went for the center it was very clear Mulcair kind of took the left for granted and thought well there's no one to my left I can move into the center right I, I can take that for granted and I can be more moderate um, in the hope of getting getting those voters but then the liberals pulled that sneaky trick right and they said well well, we'll stand up for making the income tax system, personal income tax system, more progressive. And we'll say that balanced budgets aren't necessary, right? The kind of things we would associate with the NDP. Um, so now that the NDP is smaller and they will be back on the left, that will be the debate. And when the NDP tends to have quite divisive internal debate, 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 debate 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 Debates, 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 Space, 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 it's 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 Space, <laughs> space,
so 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 the wall of 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 the wall
Ah, 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 ah,
Jack Layton became leader, we had the new politics movement within the NDP. There was actually a letter that came out during the campaign, and Naomi Klein was one of the signatories complaining about the NDP selling out its heritage. So um, I, I suspect the next NDP National Convention would be quite entertaining to attend. There will be a lot of debates, and Mr. Mulcair will have a lot to answer for because he was very much trying to make them more like a UK Tony Blair Labour kind of party. And that's not universally embraced within the party. So um, absolutely. So there'll be a lot of pressure to go to the left. Uh, whether Mr. Mulcair is comfortable staying on as a leader that's content with being the conscience of the nation, I'm less convinced of that. Mary Shillington, thanks, Harold, for your uh, contribution today. Uh, we had a, a little bit of a discussion at our table uh, that the two MPs around here in Lethbridge and in Medicine Hat both won by overriding majorities. Uh, I happened to be campaigning for an alternate choice. Uh, and uh, uh, so, and we thought our candidate was by far the best, but obviously others did not. <laughs> so what's your take on that? And uh, uh, like at, on the door, many people said, Oh, well, I'm very conservative. My parents voted conservative. My grandparents, and we're not for change. I felt like saying, "Okay, give me your microwave," because you don't want change, right? <laughs> anyway, that's my question. Okay, thank you. Um, I was originally going to include this in the talk, but I was sure somebody was going to ask this as a question, so I thought I would save this. So thank you. Um, so the local campaign was was interesting, and I think the NDP especially had high hopes going into this campaign. They had a very strong candidate. Uh, the federal party pumped quite a bit of money and, and organizers into the party. I think the, it looked more vulnerable than it was. And I think the thing we need to remember is in the 2011 election, the conservatives did not have a particularly strong candidate. Uh, I, I ran the numbers between 2008 and 2011. The conservative vote dropped more in Lethbridge than it did anywhere else in Canada outside Quebec. So when we were using that as the baseline for the projections, and if you followed like a lot of people did, the poll tracker models on CBC, Eric Grenier for most of, uh, most of well, all of August and a big chunk of September had this seat going NDP. Um, but I think it was based on a real low point. But I looked at uh, remapping that. So even when the conservatives ran a, uh, a candidate who wasn't, the most effective and certainly not a very effective campaigner, even despite that, even redrawing the boundaries, taking the rural areas, which are even more conservative than the city of Lethbridge, Elections Canada redrew the election results and still the Conservatives would have taken a majority. So, um, so I, I just think the baseline was really low and the, the Conservative discount, I'll, I'll call it, had already happened. Uh, the Conservative vote across Alberta was down uh, but I've often said if, um, if the Conservatives were reduced down to 10 seats in Canada, likely Lethbridge and Medicine Hat would be two of them. <laughs> um, uh, that, that's just the reality. Long-term voting trends, I mean, this seat has not gone anything but Conservative federally. Well, I haven't lived here that long, but decades back. Um, so I think the problem for the NDP campaign was, I think it was the federal campaign. I have a lot of students who were very, very frustrated. I have a grad student who was working on the NDP campaign, and she'd been away uh, over the election, as you can imagine, working very hard, and came in on Wednesday. And she was very, very upset. I had to calm her down. I had to tell her to uh, 
you know, maybe go home and work these feelings out and then come back tomorrow and you'll be happier. But I said, and the problem is that if the national campaign's not taking off, the local campaign doesn't have much of a chance. I, I, and then when the Liberal campaign took off any impetus for any kind of strategic voting in Lethbridge, it's really tough for people to figure out who's ahead. When all the news stories about how Justin Trudeau is winning, well, then I should vote Liberal, right? Um, so, but even then, even if everybody had voted NDP who didn't vote Conservative, if you're winning close to 60% of the vote, it doesn't really matter. Uh, Medicine Hat, I'm, I'm not as familiar with, but um, I mean, that's even been more conservative than, Le than Lethbridge, and there's not a lot you can do about it, really. Um, so I, I think it was a bunch of things going on. Generally, national, when we look at why people make their decision on how to vote, only about 20% of people say they base it on local candidates. So local candidates, I mean, they can help when it's close, but if it's not close, it's not going to win you the seat. So that would be my take. Hi, my name is Knut Peterson. <coughs> Harold, do you think you could uh, speculate on uh, whether the NICAB issue and the barbaric cultural practices issue had any bearing on the results, especially in Quebec? Well, why did uh, Mulcair maybe get punished in Quebec when Trudeau didn't? We, they had similar stands on that. Uh, and also election reform, could you touch upon well, we might be going in that regard. Okay, so on the NECAB issue, um, I mean, it was clearly a wedge attempt by the Conservatives. Um, I actually don't think it's that relevant to a lot of voters. It's more relevant in Quebec, uh, less relevant to, to, uh, to a lot of voters outside of Quebec. So I think it was partly responsible for the NDP's decline in Quebec a little bit, but uh, it's tough until we have really good data. We can't source out how much that uh, that made a difference. Um, why Justin Trudeau escaped the scrutiny where Mulcair didn't? I'm, that's a good question, and I wish I had an answer for that. I, I don't know entirely. Um, I suspect that because the NDP was sort of the incumbent with the most seats and with the most MPs to answer for this, that they may have faced a scrutiny on this that other parties didn't. I actually give Mulcair, Mulcair was in a very tough spot. He had to choose between sticking to principles and choosing um, electoral expediency, and I give him credit for sticking to what he believed, and the temptations to do otherwise must have been overwhelming. I actually think there might have been an interesting bit of a backlash for the Conservatives, though, because where they've, where, what's key for them has been the suburbs around Toronto and the suburbs around Vancouver, which have a lot of ethnocultural minorities. And I actually suspect if you start connecting the dots a little bit, you can think, well, they're going after people with kneecaps now, What's to stop them going after Sikhs with turbans and kirpans next, right? And you start to do the math while you're sort of singling out a minority for this. So I think it might have hurt them a little bit in some of those. This is just speculation. I don't have evidence for this. But I, I think that might have played a role, uh, might have hurt them. Now, in electoral reform, this is one that I'm excited. And as I said, Peter McCormick and I have been exchanging emails about this this week. Um, Justin Trudeau has promised to start a process where we study electoral reform. But he's already come out and said his favorite approach is the alternative vote, which involves people, you have to win a majority of the vote, and the way we accomplish that is uh, voters rank the candidates in order, and if nobody gets a majority on first preferences, we drop the lowest candidate, see who they want for second choice. The reason I think this is an attractive option for the Liberals is it doesn't fundamentally alter the balance of power. Um, so right now, as I said, without our electoral system, 
or something like the alternative vote. The, cons the, the liberals didn't win a majority of the vote. They won like three in five Canadians didn't want them. So any kind of proportional sort of system is going to cost them a majority. And again, these kind of things sound really good in opposition, much less attractive when you're in government. So the NDP has probably been the party that's pushed this the most. No NDP provincial government in history in Canada has ever brought in electoral reform, ever, uh, despite all the talk. Uh, so this would allow the, the, liberals to, um, the liberals to look like they're changing something that doesn't fundamentally cost them power. I think it's popular with voters. It lets you rank them in order, and it uh, would cost the Conservatives a lot because most of the first and second preference exchanges are between the Liberals and the NDP. That's what, what I would expect, but you know my record on predictions. So <laughs> the day after they bring it, if you don't see me around, if I'm hiding in my home, you'll know why, but that's my guess. Yeah, hi, great job. Uh, my name is Joseph Natuk, and I think you partially answered my question regarding the uh, the, the whole process across Canada, the voting and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. But, you know, do you have any kind of wisdom that <laughs> regarding how... Oh, if you'll settle for educated <laughs> guests, I can do that. <laughs> wisdom might be setting the bar a little high. So. How we can maybe in, in kind of streamline this process, because to me it's quite unfair to see what's happening here. As you know, Western Canada is quite different than Eastern Canada. So is there any suggestion you may want to make to us, uh, and we can lobby whomever to uh, maybe make some modify modifications to give, you know, the uh, be a more fair system? Because I don't think it's fair at this point in time. Although the majority wins, I know that. But any but, any thoughts on that? Well, the I mean, the system, if you're worried about regional representation, I, so just let me clarify, which process are you referring to? The electoral system, the translation of... Well, the electoral states? system. Okay. Yeah, what do we have today? I mean, you know, I, I mean, I know the majority rules, but I think there's still some, uh, as you know, what happens, uh, we get annihilated by the majority, and, and okay. there's totally different philosophies between West and East. Oh, so you're thinking, well, it's... So the, the problem we have is... It's a representation by population system, right? So most people live in Ontario and Quebec, and that's the way it's going to be. But there's two answers. One has is, is partly been dealt with, and uh, the Conservatives did change the formula by which we apportion seats to the provinces. It's more fair now than it was. So that's better. Alberta and BC were some of the beneficiaries, but so was Ontario. Those three provinces were underrepresented. The other thing we have is federalism. Um, things that are of important concern to local communities are largely under provincial control. I've been st struck by this repeatedly. When the federal budget comes down, it's, it's sort of vaguely interesting, but it's almost getting to the point, it's like when the United Nations introduces its budget, right? It's so distant. Provincial budget really matters. It affects healthcare, schools, my, my place of employment. It matters in a lot of ways. So federalism, the more that things are in the hands of provinces, the less of a concern those imbalances are. But given the population imbalances, um, there's not much we can do. So I would argue a system of electoral reform that was a more proportional system would probably, would probably help that because part of the frustration I think that we feel in Albertans, if you are, say, a, a New Democrat or a Liberal in Alberta, your votes always get underrepresented. They often don't matter. So if you're in Medicine Hat, I tell my students, you can, or a supporter of a small party, so I was telling my students that you could vote for a small party like the Green Party, or you could take that ballot and make an origami swan, or you could, 
eat it or you could rip it up and hold the world's smallest ticker tape parade and they all accomplish roughly the same thing, right? Oh, <laughs> uh, no, no. And that's, but, and, and that's frustrating, right? But if you have a system where, we're, where your vote matters no matter where it counts, that's going to change the calculation, right? And uh, so I think, I mean, if that's what I would do if I had. The problem of the population balance between East and West, uh, just natural population shifts are going to take care of that. Uh, more and more people move to Alberta and British Columbia. They grow at a much faster pace than the rest of the country, and that will, demographics take, are taking care of that over time. So thanks for the question. Trevor Page, um, I've read that nationally First Nations vote was up. And I'm wondering whether you've seen any data, or if not, whether you have a feel for whether that pervaded across to uh, the Picani and Blood reserves. That's, that's a good question. And had I known you were going to ask that, I could. Elections Canada has poll level data. You can actually look that up, and then you can compare. They've actually given what it would have been under this electoral system. I don't have any hard data. Uh, Anecdotally, I would expect it would because um, was it the Six Sika Nation outside of Calgary who actually ran out of ballots, right? Which is a sign of something happening. So voter turnout generally was up 68 to 68.5, like I said. And uh, I'm waiting for good data on that. Elections Canada will release estimates of voting by age uh, pretty soon, uh, or well, it'll take six months or so. They have to run the numbers on that. And that's my suspicion is because voter turnout at other levels was is usually higher, that the only place it really was to grow in, is within more traditionally disadvantaged groups like the youth and First Nations and Aboriginals. Uh, I don't know though. I, I honestly don't have data. I have a student who wanted to uh, do an independent study on that. But so my guess is yes, but I don't know if I have data to support that. Thank you for your. Uh insight on the election, uh, I find it quite interesting. I've actually managed several campaigns, both for Rick Castle and Clint Dunford in the past, and I worked on Rachel's campaign. And I think the one thing people don't realize, she was extremely well organized. Mm -hmm. And that is something far better than I've ever seen. The question I want to ask you, though, and something you didn't address, oh, Art Sanford, yeah. What I find in the, in the last election particularly, the role of the press was virtually running push polls many of the times, and uh, they seem to have far, far too much control of what is happening. And uh, I'm really concerned, even in Lethbridge, I mean, a week before the election, the Herald was speculating that the NDP were going to win the Lethbridge riding, and I mean, they, it wasn't even a contest almost. What, where do you see the press in all of this? Are, are they being fair to the, to the electorate? Well, I, I, there's some issues uh, about that. On, on the other side, though, I'll, notice, I'll note that all the post-media newspapers some of them ran conservative ads on the front page the weekend before the election. Uh, editorial endorsements across the board for the conservatives. Andrew Coyne wanted, even though he runs the editorial page and they were basically forced to endorse the conservatives, he actually wanted to write a column endorsing the NDP, which if you know Andrew Coyne is really quite astonishing, um, and basically had to resign. So I'm not sure it goes one way or the other. Um, media effects are, are really hard to tease out uh, what effect they have because the problem is that how do you separate the effects of media from other things around, around you? So the only way to really understand media effects would be to take a baby at birth and put them in a box and just show them stuff from particular television stations, see how they turn out. 
Now this explains two things. One, University Ethics Board has some problems for this with some reason. I don't understand. And my wife looked at me very suspiciously when our children were born and uh, wouldn't let me hold them. But we don't know, right? How much of it is media? How much is people around you? How much of it is how you're going to vote anyway? Um, it's very, very hard to tease out. Uh, generally, because the media is largely corporate-owned, um, it tends to be more on the conservative side, if anything. So I'm not sure that there's, there's a particular direction there, and it's very, very hard to, to identify effects. I will absolutely agree with you, just to back up to the, the comment you made initially about uh, Rachel Harder's campaign. They did work very, very hard. I don't think, like we had a uh, canvasser at our door for the Conservatives early on in the campaign. I don't think I've ever seen that before. And you could see the campaign grow in strength over time. So absolutely, I think people may, I think, People may have underestimated Rachel Harder in the Conservative campaign. Absolutely agree with you. I would down that says, thank you, Harold, for the presentation. There was much speculation before the votes were counted, and after the votes are counted, it hasn't diminished yet. So my point is, why didn't the media, wasn't the media able to read the mood of Canada, of Canadian people that wanted to get rid of the government and get another government? Why did they keep it? Artificially, a three-way race, was it the polls that the question determines the answer so they could artificially keep it a three-way race until they couldn't hold it anymore two days before the election? I think polls should be banned during the election for sure because it manipulates the people and it makes them lazy. They don't have to look at the uh, issues. They can just whatever they want. Oops, I voted in the advance poll out of principle, and it was closer to my home. If you want to know the reason why some people voted in the advance poll, thank you. Okay. Um, the, um, the polls were very close up until the beginning of October. Uh, so that's been shown dozens and dozens of polling companies over and over again. And uh, it started to pull away uh, at the beginning of October, and the Liberals started to get out front. Um, there is a lot of evidence that a lot of what journalism focuses on is horse race journalism. Who's ahead, who's not, uh, who um, and why, what's not working in the campaign. The media doesn't really talk about issues. So one of a research project that I did with a student of mine about a decade ago, uh, we were interested in studying online discussion, thinking, okay, here's a chance for people to talk about what they want to talk about. And so there's all that people really want to talk about issues and the media just keeps feeding them polls and horse race journalism. And so what did we find? What did people talk about on internet discussions? Who's winning? Who's ahead? Who's behind? Why? Why not? They were doing exactly the same thing the media was doing. So yeah, that's, um, that's just sort of the nature of it. And the impact that that has, again, it's very tough to determine that. So I'm not in favor of completely banning polls. And so this is the reason. Uh, for me, political parties are doing this polling. It's a bit like unilateral disarmament. Parties are doing more and more tracking of what we do and why. Uh, all the robocalls you got during the campaign are all being categorized and put into databases. Your postal code is associated with a bunch of socioeconomic predictors. And they use polling. And to me, well, if I want to use polling to maximize the effectiveness of my vote, then I should be able to. So if you want to vote strategically, if the most important thing to you was the mood that you talked about, that uh, there was this mood for change, which pollsters did pick up, that was reported repeatedly. 
if that's what people wanted, to be able to do that as effectively as possible, you actually needed some polling data to know who was ahead or who wasn't or who was behind. The problem is that a lot of the media polling we get is not very good polling. It's done at a national level. The sample sizes are often too small. We make inferences. And the reason is this, is the media don't pay for them. Uh, basically, polling companies do it. They get companies they, and they get media to run the questions because it's advertising for them. Would any of us know who Nick Nanos was if he didn't do this free polling for um, CTV? Uh, no. So then if you have a business, you might think, oh, Nanos was really good on election results. He'd be good for my company. If the media actually paid for polls, they'd probably be higher quality. So that's, that's my answer. But I, I can understand your frustration. A lot of the journalism is really focused on a very narrow they're covering like a sports event rather than a serious democratic debate. We'll take just one more question here. Thank you, uh, Terry Shillington. Harold, thanks for being here and for sparking this uh, interesting conversation. Uh, I'm interested in an, in an opinion from you because there wouldn't be data for this, but I can't remember an election in my uh, time in which there was such a long list of irritants uh, against the uh, federal leader, you know, from uh, the, that are associated with the leader, such from the Duffy story to the long-form census to the silencing of scientists and so on. And yet in the final days, uh, you didn't hear anybody talking about Duffy or the Senate, for example. Uh, and I'm curious as to whether you think any of those had any bearing on the result or if there was a hierarchy or are there one or two that you think mattered or, you know, they certainly mattered to party activists because they gave money by the shovelful to get rid of this guy. But for people on the, at the doorstep, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm curious about your opinion. I, I think the anti-Stephen Harper mood, I think, was absolutely decisive. I'd, I'd agree that that was important. A lot of the substantive things, I think, were subsumed by, by that larger question that we're tired of Stephen Harper and it was time for him to go. Um, if you look at sort of the history over the last three decades or so, uh, parties and prime ministers last nine or ten years if they're successful, and then people are tired of them and want to move on. Uh, the challenge for the conservatives is everything was Stephen Harper, right? It was the Harper government, right? They even stopped talking about it as the government of Canada. Harper this, Harper that. Stephen Harper made every important announcement. You heard Joe Oliver complain after the election that he would have actually enjoyed, as finance minister, the opportunity to speak in the national campaign about the national finances. But everything went through Stephen Harper. So suddenly when Stephen Harper is a drain on you, it's a total problem for the conservatives because you can't suddenly, oh, but we're not just Stephen Harper. We're all these other really great, hardworking people. You can't pull that kind of switch off. So I, I think... I, I, re I think that was an absolutely critical thing. Stephen Harper probably should not have run uh, again. Um, they should have gotten another leader. But the problem they're going to have now is because this party's been dominated by Stephen Harper, in many ways it was created by him, the succession is a real problem. We saw this in Alberta, right? Ralph Klein governed from 93 to, uh, what, 2006, roughly, where he was unceremoniously dumped by his party but they ran as Ralph's team right and then when he went the party really it had trouble because it was so associated with this one person who dominated it coming up with something that were more than that is a real challenge so I think that's that's a huge thing for the conservatives going forward but I, I, I do think that dislike of Harper probably dwarfed everything else I don't again educated guess so I don't have the data yet on that but that's that's my guess uh, that that played a huge role 
Thank you, Harold, so much for being here. Um, and maybe if you just want to leave us with a final food, th food for thought or something to take home with us today, something to sum up your, your, uh, your position here. Never predict an election result. 